0: Hey, how you doing? Today's show is sponsored by Clothing Steamers. Clothing Steamers. When you want your clothes to look meh, good enough. I had the honor to interview Madeline Smithberg, which is very exciting. Started out at David Letterman, went on to co-create The Daily Show and run that show for several years. We're there with uh, Craig Kilborn and Jon Stewart. She's hilarious and she's a really great producer. Totally underrated, let's be honest, and I think you'll see why. All right, we start by talking about how politics changed the face of The Daily Show.
1: The reason The Daily Show became the hit that it was, was the world went crazy. Because we were doing our, the show and, you know, getting a little bit of notoriety, and John had come on, and but it was really during the 2000 election when those 34 days of no president yeah that th- they turned to you they turned to us because everyone was like we can't like talk about this as if it's normal because uh-huh. it's insane so let's talk to the people that deal in insanity as as currency and that was really when the show exploded. What did you do
0: to for, to capitalize on that
1: uh what did I do to capitalize it? It was really sort of like an out-of-body experience. We just kept doing really good shows. Uh-huh. And then the rest is, as they say, history. But it was super fun because I remember going into the uh, the uh, Republican convention in 2000 and uh, thinking, you know, we didn't have ho- – we couldn't get – we were piggybacking on AP. We didn't have credentials. Oh, well, you didn't? No, we had just we were allowed to go on the floor forty five minutes every day, as part of our our deal with the Associated Press. There were no hotel rooms for us. I was staying in a dorm room at Drexel University. It was the first time I had slept on a twin bed since college. <laughs> I remember there were rubber sheets on it, and it wasn't particularly comfortable. So we and I had a friend Elizabeth Arnold, who worked at uh, NPR. And she was going, oh, it's so cute that you guys are here. Uh, like, you know, really condescending right, right, our little comedy show. Like, everybody thinks that comedy is somehow you just are silly and laugh. It's What they don't understand is we're doing your job, and then we have to turn it. We have to report the facts, set the stuff up, and then we have to come up with a brilliant take on how we can turn that into comedy. It's not near, it's not nearly as easy as people see it from and you know this from the outside it's a million times harder
0: yeah well you look at like Fox I don't know have you been approached by Fox to do uh, well,
1: a daily show well they have Red
0: Eye well, Red Eye works because uh, it's well because yeah. it's not ske- it's not like right. written it's just it's five just, snarky guys it's five
1: snarky guys responding to I feel like if I was going to do a satire of Fox, I would just show Fox.
0: Just, I wouldn't change anything. Put your bug on it. I just put it. a bug on it and send it right out there.
1: Because you almost cannot, like, parody it because it is
0: self-parody. It's fascinating. All the women are dressed like drones. Yep. They have the skirts and the heels and the blonde hair.
1: I actually cannot watch it. I have a physical reaction to it Uh because I feel like that that the stakes are really high and I feel that what they're doing is just irresponsible. I think it's irresponsible. I think that, as the success of Donald Trump has shown us, hatred and ignorance are compelling lightning rods And it's the same thing we were talking about with black Twitter. It's Uh There's this disenfranchised community, in this case, not black.
0: (laughs) Rich white guys. Yeah,
1: pretty much rich. Or not necessarily rich. Uh The sad part is that a lot of the people that drink the Kool-Aid are really exhibiting political beliefs that are not in their own best interests. And that's what's so disturbing about it. It's just hatred and ignorance. And, you know, keep in mind Hitler came to rise because, you know, Germany was in a really bad place after world war one. That treaty of Versailles was not a good thing as I learned in, you know, 11th grade history. And, we had an eight-year, you know, we had a really bad economic crisis, and even though we're in recovery, a lot of people and a lot of industries and a lot of parts of the country got hit really badly. And it's really nice to have a boogeyman, uh-huh. and Hillary Clinton is just
0: waiting to be,
1: you know, well,
0: they're jumping on whatever they can. Pinata. When you did Daily Show, did you feel you had a responsibility not to do that, or did you feel like you were doing that sometimes?
1: No, we were not doing that. We tried to make an, a concerted effort, and you know, this has been said a lot, to be what we called an equal opportunity offender, uh-huh. where we sort of, you know, we appointed ourselves the hypocrisy police, and we didn't really see it across party lines. We just had a, you know, we ferreted out or called attention to... Hypocrisy and bad behavior
0: you just wanted to make sure you didn't come too liberal or too, yeah, yeah I mean but you consider a liberal I, I, so, I mean. you know
1: at a certain point it's inevitable yeah. because any intelligent, thoughtful person who really you know looks at the information and makes a rational decision is going to realize that the Republicans are a bunch of
0: But it's also hard to to crap on the working, the the poor, the disenfranchised. It's hard. Exactly. And
1: what we saw, the difference between the Republican convention and the, we went then, you know, two weeks later, we went to the Democratic convention out here. The Republican convention was all one message. Everybody who got up made the same speech. Everybody was on point. All the talking points, all the... Because they all had the same... It was much more homogeneous. It's the way that socialism works in Sweden. They're all blonde and, you it's know... It's true, right. They're, they're, it's a very kind of consistent gene pool. But when you get over to... When you get over to the Democrats, it's like, legalize weed! Uh, you know, education! Right. It was like, such a mess! It seemed like... You know, the worst of going to a community school board meeting. There were so many (laughs) splintered and specific agendas that really didn't have any overlap. And I was just like, oh, this is
0: bad. Do you think, so do you think now, the age of Trump, that shows like Daily Show or that they're important? Oh my God, I think it's more important than it's ever, ever, ever been. How is that?
1: I think that to have somebody who is. Weeding through all the rhetoric and all the the spinning and sort of calling the truth and showing it mm-hmm. in an intelligent and hopefully funny way. Uh, you know, the proof is in the pudding that that it has had you know the the kind of response from a younger, educated audience.
0: So, with the show now. How if you were there? How would you make that transition from John Stewart, who is like this big figure now?
1: Well, you know, it, that's a, it. I thought I think actually Trevor was a really good choice, and well, I watched the beginning shows a little bit nervously because you know my name is on the show, and it it, it feeds back into my quote unquote stock. You know
0: the the black Twitter show is gone because this (laughs) guy's (laughs) things. No,
1: No, but uh, I think it was a good choice. I think that he still has to find his his point of view, Uh but clearly the machine is strong and the writing staff is strong and the producers, you know, Uh are are there so that the if it's a factory that makes you know candy bars the candy bars are still tasting a lot the same uh-huh. i think that the that john really sort of eclipsed the show uh-huh. in a great way but that the bones of the show still are there and it continues to go i don't know how the ratings are i haven't really paid attention but
0: so for him he walked in a great situation he
1: walked into an amazing situation
0: cuz you've been fun. on the beginning of shows where... oh, Yeah,
1: yeah no i i what i'd like to say is you know We built a machine. We Uh built a car. We built a really great race car, and he's a decent driver, so we should all be okay.
0: So, what what does he need to change? You think? Just to be more of himself? He just needs to
1: be more of himself and bring more. Like, you can't feel. I sometimes feel that there's a little tiny bit of Trevor that doesn't feel as genuine and heartfelt as John, but I do. Because he's new at it. Because he's new at it. Uh And I think that. You know, but I do think he will grow into it, and I think that, I hope that the show continues to be an important, you know, cultural force, especially
0: during this upcoming election someone's going to need to, right. you know... And then Jon Stewart coming back to TV. Do you think it's just it's hard, like comic going back on stage? Like, why do you think- Is he
1: coming back to TV? Did I miss something?
0: Yeah, yeah, HBO.
1: Oh, that's now the chart form that he's producing.
0: Oh, okay. But he still has a voice. I mean, because yeah. you leave, like, like, when Oprah leaves her show after 25 years, she lost that voice. Yeah. And then she replaces it with 25 other projects.
1: Yeah, and Weight Watchers. I think that for both, it's interesting, because for me personally, there was all this sort of, shifting in late night which is you know it's a tempest in the teapot to anybody else on the planet but it's the world that you and i sort of have inhabited i've inhabited for god three decades it's really scary because i was i worked for dave letterman from 86 to 92 and then did the john stewart show on mtv then the john stewart show on syndication then Launched, created and the Daily Show, and ran it for the first seven and a half years. In the process, I hired Stephen Colbert. I hired him based on a tape that a junior William Morris agent named Mike August, oh, you know, Mike, uh, sent to me. And it was a it was a reel of sketches from the the um, Dana Carvey show, which I think lasted like three episodes. But one of those sketches made me laugh so hard that I played it like 40 times and kept calling people into my office, and it was waiters who are nauseated by food. <laughs> and it was the funniest thing. I called Mike. I go, when can he start? And it, that was the days that I didn't have to clear it with anybody. Uh-huh. I had a really smart way that I worked with the correspondents. I, was very, I didn't need any exclusivity I did everything initially uh-huh. as one-offs it was like okay I think you're good Adam why don't you come and you'll do a piece and once again we'll give you the support of the machine you'll have a producer you'll have an AP there'll be writers working with you uh-huh. researchers and we'll set you up and you know give you a story that you
0: that seems right for
1: you that seems right for you and we'll get you know we'll edit it we'll cut it we'll, you'll come in you'll present it and we'll see how it goes and it was kind of this idea that we were doing four shows a week and if it wasn't the greatest thing in the world it I think we had one that didn't air of all but again I had so much creative freedom. We also didn't have a pilot the way Doug convinced me to do the daily show which I didn't want to do I was like trying to get pregnant uh-huh. I had been on Letterman. For six years, I'd done two years of the Jon Stewart show on MTV and then in syndication. I wanted off the ride. Uh-huh. And Doug was really persistent. And finally, the way that he convinced me, he came to me no exaggeration, like five times to do The Daily Show. And I was like, no, I'm not not doing it. Do have no interest in being back in that world and in that life. And finally, he said... I will give you a year. You don't have to pilot it. And we're going to put the, you know, the major portion of our promotional budget behind this show. It's my number one. And I was like, okay, walk back in the office. We were developing this other thing for them, which was a, a like a hybrid. It was it, Liz and I had come up with it. It was called Network. And it was sort of like... Larry Sanders would have a network So you created the worst network in the world And then you could do clips of all their terrible shows Right, right But I walked back in where uh, Liz was And Elise Roth Who was uh, my business partner at the time And is still a really good friend of mine And I said, well guys, we're going to take these cards down And put up some different cards Because we're going to do their daily show for them And I got, what, what, what And then said, no, he's going to give us a year We don't have to pilot it And so there was always a sense from the very beginning at The Daily Show there was something that I have not seen again in my career which was the most satisfying creatively and just plain fun. We... It wasn't that panic of you better be a success. At BET we had four weeks to be a hit with no promotion. You're never going to succeed in an 11 o'clock strip.
0: But here's they're having you run it and you've already done The Daily Show and every other show you've done since so they know you can do it. So what do you think BT is a hundred people wearing, what's the difference now?
1: I think now just there's, the budgets are tighter, there, you know, there's fewer, everyone just seems to be operating from a place of fear. We get, when I sell a show, I get a development deal which is a step deal. It's like a tiny bit of money with a lot of pressure that you always over deliver on and your what we're doing for WeTV is you know or what we did for history or what we uh, were doing for MTV for with a project called Slice News which is like a comedy vice uh-huh. you have to produce a, a proof of concept and it's almost impossible to produce a proof of concept for a show that costs let's make up a number half a million dollars for it's just you can't I can tell you about it so there's no trust anymore and not just me yeah I believe that sort of the conglomerate of the entertainment industry should trust me a little bit more but it hasn't happened Uh it's literally what have you done for me lately
0: is that what it like if you had a hit yesterday it's done Uh
1: until you know it's good for like two years and then it wears off and it's just, you know, you're. I'm shaping up. I'm like every other schmuck outside of Home
0: Depot
1: <laughs> who wants to, like, you know, do Get yard work. Uh huh. It's that's the way that it is. And it, for a while, it really upset me. And now I'm just, I'm, I'm too
0: like. Uh, what did what what broke in you? you just I just this- came to a
1: really sort of. Well, my dad died about a year and a half ago. That's all right. But before my dad died, I took time, I was. I spent a year helping him die, mm-hmm. and I just got a very up-and-close view of life in all of it, you know, with a capital L, mm-hmm. and, and I realized that nothing matters, and there really is no reason. You cannot stress about things that you cannot control, and all that I know... That I'm hilarious. <laughs> I mean, I guess I should start bringing my Emmy and my Peabody into the
0: meetings. Right.
1: But I, you know, and I have Cheryl. I partnered about a year and a half right at the time my dad died. I, I right thereabouts partnered with Cheryl Baer, who you would love, who used to be the head of comedy at Fox. She used to be a packaging agent at CAA. She was in casting. She's Fonzie's niece. Oh, uh, she's you a need. force of nature, but came from a scripted world. And so now we have, you know, a couple of scripted projects we're developing, which is super fun. That's new and, to you. It's new to me, uh-huh. so it's flexing different muscles, and I've really gone back to the, my best times at The Daily Show, what I was telling you about now were just having fun and getting together and going, okay, here we are. I described it as every day we would play slots with the world, like you'd come in and at nine o'clock, whatever was in the news cycle was what you had that day. And so you would you'd make hay. You would just sort of like make lemonade out of the news. And some days would be amazing. And, you know, there wouldn't be a president for another day. And (laughs) the Supreme Court would give the election to George Bush. You know, it was great. And then other days it would be Shark Week and you would be like, oh, my God, how are we going to fill?
0: How did you fill it sometimes?
1: We would be creative. Uh, we also would work backwards. We were really, you know, we got the hang of it, but it never was, You never felt comfortable because it was always uh-huh. spinning, you know, and it, yeah, it, yeah. you're just kind of, you have to learn. It's like, you know, I guess, I never do it because I'm a chicken, whitewater rafting, where you just kind of navigate around the flow of the water But you're not going to stop it. So it's sort of like the, you know, life and trying to be happy and not take things too personally and find, you know, comfort within. Right, right. Uh, It's a similar type of thing. We would just be creative. And often we got every day we had a feed from – we had feeds from a bunch of different sources. We had news feeds that we purchased. Uh So if there wasn't a big story, we would look at, okay – what do we have the best media on and then we would just you know, we would make a big mountain out of a molehill out of a tiny story that we had one of a woman that, you know, foiled a robber with a zucchini who was trying to ride <laughs> a farm stand. So, <laughs> so you would do it regular
0: local news does. Yeah. Was, yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
1: We would just kind of, you know and it wouldn't be our the show we'd submit for the Emmys, but we'd get through the day, and tomorrow we'd get to, you know, sort of pull the lever again.
0: The thing with a daily show, it is true that sometimes it's not going to go great, but there's another one tomorrow. There's
1: another one tomorrow. And that goes back to what I was saying of the freedom and the collaborative, you know, you hire. I had so much fun hiring the team and all the original writers and producers, and because you just sort of you hired the best people you could find that were also I always hire based on what I want to hang out with them Uh and you having a kid now you don't get this because I figured anyone that's not my baby you know or a member of my family or one of my closest friends I'm going to spend more time with them than people I'd choose I might as well choose people I'd like to spend time with Uh and so it was a great group and a lot of them are still there which is hilarious to me but we were throwing spaghetti at the wall. We would just say, oh, let's try this.
0: The format for The Daily Show, what did you guys do in that year besides stress out?
1: Okay, well, something really... We never stressed out. Uh Uh-huh. We really didn't. We took it as an incredible opportunity, and it was... The the world was our oyster, so you have to start somewhere. Uh Uh-huh. And someone recently sent me the kind of beat sheet for the show that we sent out initially when we were on Comedy Central, Letterhead. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And it, 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 it just was sort of, it was the act of developing a show that hadn't coalesced yet. Uh-huh. And then something happened. 24-hour news networks started popping up like weeds. Every time you would blink, there'd be, you know, there was CNN and there was CNN always, but then there was CNBC and Fox News and MSNBC. And it was like every, there were so many 24 hour news outlets and there really wasn't enough news. Uh, There wasn't enough news. And Uh so what happened was it started getting away from reporting the news and became just kind of the cult of personality and all of the news people on all of these 24-hour news channels. And at that time, NBC's prime time was in, I guess, its second crisis. And they had Dateline NBC on five nights a week. And I was obsessed. I just couldn't get enough of Stone Phillips. Uh That guy with the head turns and the cocking, the furrowed brow, and the he would like... Put on your look serious face and the walk and talks. And we just realized we had an epiphany, and it really was like a group epiphany. I get a created by credit, Liz gets a created by credit, but I really think that there are other. People that were involved, which would be the original writers, the producers, uh Brian Unger, for sure, because he had come from CBS, where he knew the he tricks of the news trade. Guy. He was a real news guy, and he was disgusted with it, and his disgust really helped focus our comedy. Wow. And then Stone Phillips really should get a Created by Credit, because we studied the guy. And we did this one every, you know, three times a week on Dateline, they would do this segment called A Survivor's Story. And they would take some poor schmuck who, like, had gotten stuck in a crevasse or, was, you know, mountain climbing, and then they would do an hour on how he got into the trouble and then how they got him out, and they used animation and interviews and recreations. So I said, you know what, let's do that. And we called it A Tale of Survival. And we built an open, and then nothing happened, nothing happened. I think we had the open built for about six months until the mascot for the San Diego Sharks got stuck up in the rafters (laughs) in his shark costume, and they had to stop the game. And the fire department had to come (laughs) and lowered the guy from the rafters of the arena. We got the entire fire department. We got the mask on. We recreated and we did it with, we, had, we built an animation of the little shark like coming down. And it was off to the races. About two weeks later, an idiot tried to rob uh, a hamburger joint and he got stuck in the French fry vent, spent the night there. <laughs> and the first employee shows up in the morning, sees feet hanging out of the French <laughs> fry vent. And they had to use vegetable oil to lubricate it. And when they, in the process of extricating him from the vent so that they could arrest him, his pants fell off. So he finally ended up coming out. Pantsless. So that's sort of like emblematic of, you know, the way that we interfaced with the real.
0: I think a lot of people don't realize when they do comedy or they'll say, they'll find a crazy story like that and then kind of we act did wacky. it super straight. Yeah, yeah. That was our, that. okay. So
1: we're developing the show. We're developing the show. Uh, Doug is obsessed with Craig Kilborn. What we, is that? Did
0: you see it so funny on SportsCenter?
1: Yeah, Doug. Actually the whole mission of the Daily Show was to be for Comedy Central what Sport Center is for ESPN, which is a show that you just tune to. No matter what happens in the world, well, in that in their case the world of sports, you know that if you go to Sport Center you're going to get it digested for you and you're going to get all the highlights you need. <sighs> You can't sit and watch sports twenty four hours a day. Most people. My son can. <laughs> he's, <got a> <laughs> he's on he's on winter break still. But you know that you can come to this show and the topicality of it becomes a magnet and then hopefully people stay at your network uh-huh. and watch the other crap that you have. But uh so that was really the the mandate. And then we knew we made the first rule we had was it had to be based in reality. It couldn't be pretendy It had to be real. So we weren't going to do crazy characters. It wasn't going to be Saturday Night Live. At le- I mean, there are comparisons to Weekend Update, but we never really thought of ourselves as Weekend Update, even though I, although I do see, oh yeah, we were doing something similar. We felt like what we did was take it much, much, much further. And we had this epiphany. That was like a hallelujah moment uh-huh. where it kind of spread around the room, and we all realized that we had solved the problem. Not the problem, the challenge. We'd overcome the challenge, which was that if we just pretended we were them, we could do anything we wanted. And that coalesced the vision of the show. So we became the most important television program ever. Uh-huh. And we became a news show. And we were, it was from Comedy Central World News Headquarters in New York. I wrote that. This is The Daily Show. Do you know The Moment of Zen was my cat? My cat wrote The Moment of Zen. Her name was Lillian. That was my ex-husband's cat. I was never too fond of her. Um, She's maybe, a good writer, she was, though. She was a good writer. And we used to watch Sunday Morning the Charles Kuralt uh-huh. uh, CBS Sunday Morning. And at the end of the show, he would, there would be like two minutes, and Charles Geralt would say, and now we leave you with images of the western osprey nading in the marshlands of northern Minnesota. And there were, there were two minutes of these Literally. birds, and my cat would go crazy. <laughs> She totally was obsessed. She would come to the t v uh-huh. and she would just watch the birds, and so the idea of ending the show putting a buffer uh but our joke was we would make it the most disturbing piece of footage we could possibly find.
0: Uh-huh, and what was the first ones that you had?
1: My favorite first one was we had some footage of like chicken being produced in a factory, and there were like just bodies of chickens hanging and swinging around a conveyor belt there was one of Alestra boiling and olestra was they it was supposed to be this miracle uh fat that didn't you could cook foods boil them but they wouldn't it wouldn't impart it wouldn't impart calories it was like too good to be true and what i found over the years is most things that seem too good to be true usually are and uh so they started manufacturing potato chips which were unfortunately called wow potato chips that <laughs> <laughs> had a really unfortunate side effect, which was called anal leakage.
0: Wow. I have anal leakage. Wow, well, uh.
1: my butt is dripping. <laughs> so when that, when that was, you know, that was one of those days where you're just like, oh my God. So we did the whole story on Alestra which was just hilarious to us. It's, an, it's a sophisticated poop joke, but it's <laughs> yeah. a poop joke nonetheless. And uh, ended the show with just the boiling potato chips in a vat. Um, yeah.
0: What was The Daily Show like when you started, and what did you change immediately? What was
1: There was nothing. There. What do you mean, what did I change immediately?
0: Well, like, things you think would work, and you get on TV, and you're like, oh, that doesn't work.
1: Oh, okay, okay, okay. So initially we tried to do, this is what's interesting. We had A. Whitney Brown. And we thought that we would do headlines in the first act, the second act, and the third act. So the first act, it was called This Just In. The sec, uh, the, we had This Just In, In Other News, and oh my god, I can't remember what the third one was. And uh, uh, But we had headlines, and we thought that we would do a segment in the third act, with a Whitney Brown, and it would be the littler stories, uh-huh. but what we realized was those didn't really work at all it? because you 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 can't make a joke when you're when you really other than the zucchini lady who worked, and that worked because there was tape. but the story itself is so implausible that there's nowhere to really go to satirize it. It's like what I was saying about uh Fox News, uh-huh. so yeah. Uh the weird, wacky, smaller news stories are those things that you read and you go, Huh. But you don't really talk about it anymore after that. So he would tell the actual story and then it was kind of like, So what? So we did that like twice and it didn't work. We didn't have an audience in the beginning.
0: Yeah, what is that like doing a comedy show with that it audience? It's terrible. <laughs> it's not good. This
1: is awful. It takes forever, by the way. Why is that? Because without the, you know, impetus Pacing? of we better we don't want these people to see our dirty laundry, uh-huh. you just the job expands to fill the time allotted to it. And so it was just slow tapings and over and over again and no energy in the studio. And then Doug Herzog said, You need a live studio audience and Liz and I were like, No you can't do it, you'll corrupt our perfect vision. Of, you know, we didn't think of ourselves as a comedy show. We thought of ourselves as the most important television program ever, and we drank a little of our own Kool-Aid uh-huh. and didn't get our own irony, which is in itself a little
0: ironic. Oh, you're too close.
1: Yeah, too close, too close. But so Doug said, you're going to have an audience, and we decided to do a test show and take a show we'd already written and re-record it with an audience, and we did that on the Sally, Jesse, Raphael sat on 57th street which was just very bright and as su- by the end of the first act Liz and I both went to Doug and just like you know what do you want us to eat we you, we were so wrong wow and then we had to reconfigure the whole studio we were in a tiny stage oh you stayed in the same stage you stayed in the same stage and it was a I've had a bigger apartment in this house is bigger <laughs> than, than our stage. It was the old McNeil Lehrer offices at PBS, which is now the Hudson hotel. Uh-huh. But at the time it wasn't that it was a little PBS and then a little international youth hostel. And I had outside of my uh, office, which I believe had been Robin McNeil's office. There was like a patio, but it wasn't a patio. It was really just a New York Patio, i.e., a roof, uh-huh. and uh, so the we got me uh, lounge chairs and an umbrella, but I never was able to use it because about three times a day, giant bags of garbage would come <laughs> flying down, and I knew they were Italians because it was usually pomodori pelati, like cans of peeled tomatoes, and I would look out the window and go, "Siete disgustosi." They were just, because in Italy, where I've spent a lot of time, and I love it, and I work for Italian TV, and I have a house there, uh-huh. people, like, just throw shit out the window.
0: <laughs> I think it's a first-world thing. And So they would just throw it out the they window? They would just
1: throw their garbage out the window, and I could no longer use my patio. But anyway, so we had this really tiny stage, and but we got, I think, 100 people in there. It, that was one step up. I had a funny thing, which was, uh, you know, Kilbourne is the first house. I've always had a great relationship with Craig. People say terrible things about him, but the thing that was great about him was you, there was no false advertising. Like, he that he opened his meeting, our, his first meeting with us at in Doug's Comedy Central office with, oh, Doug Herzog, you used to work for uh, MTV. Do you know downtown Julie Brown? I love the brown sugar. At which point, <laughs> that was his opener. So you really, there was nowhere to go from but up from there.
0: Right. Now, did you think he would work as well as he did?
1: Mm. I, I remember the day we decided to put the writers through the drill. You know, come in at the time we were doing, what would happen was the writers would come in at nine and... We had a researcher who's still there named Adam Chodokoff, and this is of course before the internet mm-hmm. who would pull put together a packet based on like thirty sources and then uh the what was called the post op team would come in and show the different feeds and the uh, Liz and the head and future head writers at well and the writers would decide what the you know five stories we were going to do that day and Kind of push them in directions of where the angles might be, uh-huh. and then the writers would go away and write until one o'clock. And at one o'clock, jokes were due, and then we'd all get together and uh, Craig would read the jokes in the room with all the writers, and it was so much fun. Oh wow! It was so first all thing the that jokes. John killed. Yeah. Why is that? He just didn't want to see their faces. So from that moment on, it was all like emails. He didn't want to see them. He didn't want to see the writers personally. He didn't want to be choosing their jokes. He felt too much pressure. He didn't like the community sense of it. He just was like, "No, have them just email them in, and I will read them and tell you what we're doing." So it was. Uh, it, the show dumb. might have gotten better, but it got a lot less fun.
0: Did that changed the process, besides just not being as much fun, or the well, relationship. It also with the made
1: it. I think the beginning show, and I really think that the the show from the first two years. Has not gotten quite as much credit as it should have for building the foundations for what was to come later. It hasn't really changed. It hasn't really changed at all. And when especially seeing Trevor
0: Noah, I'm like, oh, my God, this is the exact same show. Well, as of last week, they changed. He, does, he stands up for the first 10 minutes or something.
1: Are you telling the truth?
0: Yeah, yeah. They changed the theme and he stands. They changed the theme? They upped it. They hipped it up.
1: It's not dog on fire anymore, but it's a new version. It's a new version.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: That's it's not that they might be Giants version anymore. Um yeah, no, but that was fun choosing the theme. Like Bob Mold Liz had reached out to him, he sent us the theme. That's amazing. Bought it, and that was that.
0: Did you know what you were looking for or you just figured Bob? And we Mule told him.
1: Done? I think we gave him direction. We wanted something, you know, duh, that if you heard in the other room, you would go, oh, I better go into the other room. I should be sure I turn off the water because the Daily Show's on.
0: Right. Well, theme song.
1: Theme song. Yeah, that's the <laughs> you rewrote the wheel. Yeah.
0: Genius. <laughs> You're a genius. Yeah, genius. Uh, what, what other changes did John bring? John Stewart.
1: Um, well, I think that what was the the cool part of the first two and a half years with Craig yeah. was that there were a lot of really smart people on that staff. And it was much more of a, a sort of like a group effort. The writers were much more empowered. The individual producers had a lot of the correspondents' voices were heard uh but it wasn't since craig didn't really have a point of view other than he thought his eyebrows had been tinted to red uh or that the makeup on his hand didn't match his face he'd, you'd be pitching him jokes and maybe looking in the mirror <laughs> to see if his hand and his cheeks were the same hue uh it was caused a vacuum, and that was filled with a really collaborative, lot of different ideas. But what it didn't have, and what John brought to the show, inarguably, was a point of view. He coalesced it, but it became filtered through a single vision. Whereas before, it had been much more of kind of a, a group. Yeah. effort and dynamic and obviously the John version is better historically it goes down but there were things in the beginning that I think were really awesome did you ever see god stuff
0: uh-huh. Who was, hosted that? uh huh which was
1: his name was John his name was John Bloom okay and he was in bed with an organization that was monitoring the way that uh, uh religious televangelists specifically were using the airwaves to extract money from unsuspecting individuals. So they had like a watchdog and they had satellites once again, no internet. Uh, Uh, and they recorded all of this like crazy televangelists and we did a weekly, you know, yeah. And so you think that was a review. I think it was really smart and really great. And, uh, you know, I would hold it up to a
0: lot of things that have come since. It just seemed like, how did you find all the stuff? It's because you had this group who wanted you guys to expose it. Uh, They
1: pitched it to us. That's so great. We we initially, when we were launching the show, reached out to everybody. Mm -hmm. We talked to every manager. We talked to every agency. We came out here. We did a dog and pony show. If there was a funny person, we wanted to know who they were and figure out a segment because the top of the show – we didn't know it at the time, but the way that it shakes down is the top act of the show is topical, mm-hmm. so that there's no way to plan ahead you're that's the you know the the thing you're playing with the world, mm-hmm. and it's really production heavy because the jokes have to get written, and that has happened by one o'clock, but then footage needs to be cut, animation has to happen, graphics need to be put in stringer reel needs to be built.
0: It's the most important segment. And
1: it's the most important segment of the show. So, you, the day of, you know, the most of the people that are working on the show's efforts are going toward getting that show to bed uh-huh. or out and up on the air. But the writers are done by one o'clock. And, but the head writer and me don't have time to really manage them because we're now in edit bays and, you know, cutting things and changing things. So, we would have longer lead segments that the writers could then turn to and start working on in the afternoon. And that would be things like God Stuff. We did a segment with Michael Blyden that Stuart Bailey produced, which I always loved. And he took, it was also, it was a different time. And it almost could make sense again with the internet, but we took, it was, we took music videos, which were still aired on MTV and VH1. And he would break them down as if they were movies. So it was like this sort of innocent watching these music videos out of context and trying to interpret it as if it was like, there was a plot. So there was one Tony Braxton one where she's like walking on the beach and it just was hilarious. And he's going, obviously there's, you know, a theme <laughs> of the pull of the ocean and it was hilarious. Like just try did it. With
0: Rich Brown. We yeah. did
1: Rich Brown. We did, who's a good friend of mine. And, um, Public access, Yeah. And we did clips from public access. We did one on, in, on advertising that was called Ad Nauseam. You know, you would come up with sort of, we tried something with Paul F. Tompkins, it never really worked. I bet it was like trying to be like an entertainment tonight type of thing, like a Hollywood report. Why we, doesn't that work? I People have tried did, that a lot. It's, yeah. I worked on the showbiz show for like five minutes. I really think it could work. Uh, it just has to be, you have to really buy into it. But I don't know why, and I think it may be a part of that Fox News thing where how can you really satirize something that's so stupid?
0: Right, they're so vapid already. Yeah, And they're talking about it
1: like it's... And that people that are really interested in it won't get it. Whereas at least with news, people will get it because people that are interested in news are hopefully a little bit more intelligent than people that care what the Kardashians who didn't exist yet were doing. But even in the same level, so you can't really make fun of something that someone else isn't really as annoyed by as you are.
0: Right, they're they're drinking the Kool-Aid. They're drinking
1: the Kool-Aid, so, so it's really
0: hard. The get to the showbiz show, and it's a little inside baseball, but I know you were brought in, and I had a friend working there, and he had said it was run like hell. I mean, no one's going to get hurt now. The show's been off 10 years. But that hey, you came in, and you had all these changes.
1: I told them the most important, uh, and I really think I helped the show. Mm-hmm. Um, The most important, like, Uh is choose your targets. And I can guarantee you that they're not fat girls or crack whores. Uh Like, there's a sort of lazy comedy writer male thing to make the fat actress in Hollywood the butt of the joke when it's not her, you know, it's just completely so I... I sat down with Spade and I was like I literally taught him how to look at the problem and if you're making fun of this thing where who's behaving poorly she's not right it's the system that is valuing a woman only by the size of her boobs that she's playing in. Yeah, yeah. That's where the target needs to be. So it was really kind of like a yogic shift. Uh-huh. Like, I don't know if you ever do yoga, but they'll come and adjust you, and it's really tiny, but it's profound because everything falls into place. Yeah. So I really came in and was just like, okay, guys, throw away everything you're doing and think about what your mission is and who your target is. Who are you mad at? Who's, be- who's acting like a dick?
0: That's great. Instead of just like an easy
1: slap shot at a bunch of shit.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I feel like a lot of his humor or who who he is. I mean, talk about the voice is a guy who would make fun of.
1: Yeah, but it's not fair and it's not funny and it doesn't work. And so you have to kind of like really, if you are doing satire, which that show was supposed to be, right? What are you making fun of? Uh-huh. Who is? Where are the excesses? Where is the sort of questionable decision making and behavior? That's what you need to go after. And maybe the promos too. Poor girl.
0: Yeah, put on weight or, or turn forty-six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, yeah. It made me sick. Because he also comedy punching up, and it's hard to punch up.
1: Something that's not based on anything yeah. real.
0: Yeah, yeah. Entertainment. Yeah. No,
1: I, I really kind of, if I look back, there's things that I regret. And I regret not staying there, Doug was begging me to stay there, but it was still too soon for me to be inside of comedy. it just it was my personal wounds were still a little bit too from raw. the Daily show, yeah, and I don't really want to talk about any of that yeah so.
0: yeah yeah no I t- yeah. I, I totally went to that with after came it was hard to go back to yeah. shit like that yeah, 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 so what is it? What is it about, like this show now, um, the, Twitter sh- the black Twitter show you're doing, what are the targets for you there?
1: Well, that's easy because we are taking... Whitey. Yeah, pretty much
0: me. <laughs> you.
1: The white woman. That's yeah, what yeah. I always get called. This, I've, uh, I've worked on a lot of black shows. i worked on Steve Harvey's Big Time. Right. Uh, I worked on Don't Sleep. I did a pilot with Stephen A.
0: Mm-hmm. for
1: Showtime. Uh, and I love it. It.
0: He's amazing, Stephen. He's
1: amazing. That what do you really, think about him?
0: That he's just. Should he be bigger? Is he? Why didn't that show work? I mean, I feel like that guy is like well, a diamond. That
1: was. You know, I've had all these. We were talking before about all the my shows that I've done that haven't moved forward. I've been the victim, like three times, of regime change, uh-huh. where one person buys your show and then gets fired. Or gets a better job. And then the new person that comes in inherits it. And it, that it's really the kiss of death. Uh-huh. Just had it happen with my history show. Uh-huh. Where it was like, oh, develop a late night show for us for history. We came up with this incredible idea. It's called history repeats itself. History repeats itself.
0: <laughs> it's and, already a great show.
1: Right, and the concept is that our show, uh-huh. HRI Squared, has been on in late night television since the dawn of time. Uh-huh. So we have clips from back when we shot the show in a cave. Mm-hmm. You know where, you, so it gives you a way to basically look at what's happening in the present through the the, the really specific lens of late night comedy. Uh-huh. So we have like Napoleon was on our show and like we had to give him a booster seed and like. <laughs> Just hilarious shit. Uh-huh. But the woman that hired us like four weeks into our deal got bumped out and then the guy came in I was like, we're dead. We're dead. And sure enough, hold on. Garbage cans are going in. But Lori's bringing in her garbage cans. I know. She's bringing them in.
0: Totally safe.
1: I'm safe from garbage cans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But- just had a show not happen Uh because somebody died now I'm so sorry for their family but I'm also sorry for my show
0: (laughs) what do you mean somebody died okay
1: I had a show at a a production company and the production company was part of a larger conglomerate conglomerate the show is called bad dogs club and it's a reality show Set in a doggy daycare uh-huh. with comedian voices using actual dogs. Uh-huh. I had done my one foray into the reality genre, which I will never do again. Which was I produced uh, Cindy Lauper's reality show for Wee TV, and uh, what I saw was that you can make any story you want to. So if I'm sitting here with you and then I suddenly pick up my cup and I move it over here, Uh we can do 10 minutes of content on that. Now they're going to interview you and you're going to go, I don't really understand why Madeline picked the cup up and moved it, but I'm pretty sure she had her motives. Then they'll interview me. I felt like picking up the cup. I don't understand why Adam has so much trouble with that concept. <laughs> then we'll interview my dog. He'll go, I heard them talking about a cup, but I was actually sleeping. Now we've made content out of nothing. I moved a cup. Right. So we put the dogs in interview on doggy <laughs> beds, and we uh-huh. just interviewed them holding still. And we have a company we work with that does visual effects, and we were going to do really, like, gentle cgi we could make make up storylines you know based on he peed on my spot
0: right right, right. you know like or he walked uh, by me, and walked by the me and like i
1: can't believe he did that he <laughs> my
0: butt. Yeah.
1: we're in it and then some executive of the company the main head honcho may he rest in peace passes away they replace him and the guy that we're working for doesn't like the new guy and quits, and now it's like we're done.
0: Wow! And so the, it's so.
1: <laughs> How am I supposed to protect myself from that?
0: <laughs> but it's so hard not to see that, right? When you because in any other company that wouldn't work. Why would you spend all this money developing a show and then just not do it?
1: And then just not do it? No, because I think that we live, we work in an in, uh, industry that is driven by ego. Mm-hmm. it's creative and it's egotistical and I think that who knows but it just always happens so with the Stephen A thing uh, uh, you know one guy had bought it and then the other guy came in and I think he would have killed it right away but didn't want to be perceived as racist uh huh but- Oh, the, the garbage can? Sorry. That's all right. She has two.
0: Oh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there's recycling. If if she has a green one, we're dead.
0: Yeah, yeah. If the gardener came. We're yeah, in if trouble. The gardener
1: came. We're dead. He also alerts me to leaf blowers, uh-huh. uh garbage trucks, and car alarms. Oh,
0: Things that's that all I there is. Never hear in L.A. all day long. All those day long. Leaf blowers. Long. We have
1: a joke as we're working here. We call it cue the leaf blower because I have this theory that all over L.A. like there's a meeting. Once every six months, uh-huh. that's like okay. I've got the left side of the street. You take the right side of the street. Yeah, so that there will always be a leaf blower on at all times.
0: Hey, God forbid you guys do it at the same time. Get right, it, over. it just
1: would be so much easier. Yeah, but instead, so all over L.A., leaves just blow from one driveway to another.
0: <laughs> oh, that's true. They yeah. drive it over they just, here, those and those guys drive it back. blow them
1: here. Luckily, my guy comes Friday, so I've got the end. Of, I've got the cleanest lawn for the weekend. <laughs>
0: And then it comes back Monday. It comes
1: back Monday. And, and so then it you, lives there till Friday. So I actually lose, depending on how you like to look at it. So but there one is one one. no winning, Adam. There is no winning. No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, to go back to being, how did you start at Letterman? How did you decide to produce instead of anything else?
1: Okay. So I was a liberal arts major. I was an art history major. I mean, we can go back really far. My, uh, Where did you go to school? I went to SUNY Binghamton, Harper uh-huh. College, in uh, the Princeton of the SUNY system.
0: Uh-huh. I went it's, to the uh, SUNY New Paltz, which is oh, the awesome. SUNY purchase of yeah. SUNY system. Yeah, it's the SUNY purchase <laughs> of the SUNY system, <laughs>
1: hilarious. So I went to Binghamton and didn't plan anything. When I My parents were awesome uh and exposed me and my brother to a lot of art my dad had studied painting all of my parents friends were artists and when we were when i was 12 they took me to europe for 7 months mm. and i had been i was taken to every church every museum every relic every greek temple roman temple in all of europe and uh when i got to college I took Art History 101 and realized that I'd seen every single thing. Oh, wow. So I was an art history major, which isn't a major of anyone who has
0: plans for the future. (laughs) You just knew that you can get through it.
1: I loved
0: it. Uh It
1: was like a great – it's a great writing major because you're basically seeing something visual – and then you're writing about it and you're interpreting it and you're putting it into historical context. It was like taking history pills. like You didn't have to read a thousand-page biography of Winston Churchill, but you would look at the art of the time and set it in the context that was, that was enough history for me. Uh, but when I got out of school, it was sort of like, oh, not a lot of those art history jobs.
0: <laughs> they promise you.
1: I always wanted to be in media or movies, but I had this, and I had started, I was in comedy without knowing that it had a name Uh from a a really young age. Um, My friend Jeannie Altschaler and I used to write satirical musical comedies about our families which we wrote in longhand Uh on Dayglo Spiral Notebooks, which apparently she has somewhere. And we would just, you know, poke holes in our immediate families and exaggerate everyone and then put it to song. And I was always known in high school being like the funny one. Uh But I didn't really know there was a a career path that corresponded to that. And uh, when I got out of, I did my semester, I did a semester abroad in Italy when I was a junior, And I became really fluent in Italian. I also just fell in love with everything about Italy. But my first job was working for the mother of a boy I had gone to nursery school with, Uh uh, who had a production company in her brownstone in the West Village, And I essentially was, you know, buying cat litter and unloading dishwashers. You know, my four years of college (laughs) 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 were being really well used. And I loved it. And it was interesting work and I liked the people, but I kind of felt like I could do something a little bit more. And I found out there was an office of Italian TV in New York. I sent them a resume and then it was like a joke of when you order Chinese food, like I said, I put the resume in the, real, in the mailbox and the phone rang. Uh-huh. They were like, when can you start? Because they knew that I spoke Italian but had an American work ethic. Uh-huh. And I, it was an incredible four years. And somewhere in that four years, I discovered The Letterman Show i had a really bad boyfriend and we were staying up way too late and uh watching letterman and i've never felt like something was speaking directly to me as much as that show uh-huh. and so i started a one woman campaign to get a job on the letterman show and i kept getting rejected but it kept
0: we well, just kept sending them resumes. I sent
1: them resumes. I knew we had a uh, Rai, R A I, which is Italian TV, had a uh, deal with NBC, so I like had I got tickets. I found out who to send resume to, and at a certain point in that time, which would have been like eighty three, eighty four, uh, I went to lunch with a really good friend of mine who was a British on air personality named Remy Blumenfeld. And uh, he said, I said, you know, I feel like I'm getting, I'm outgrowing Italian TV. And he said, well, what do you want to do without missing a beat? I said, I need to work for David Letterman. He said, oh, you must meet my friend Darcy Hetrich. She's there. So I called Darcy Hetrich and she says, oh, Madeline, I can't recommend you because I don't know you and I don't have time to meet you because I'm leaving the show on Friday and I'm moving to California, and I'm getting married, and you're never going to get a job on The Letterman Show because nobody ever leaves. It's the most competitive job to get at NBC. And so I was really sort of crushed, and I ended up accepting a job inside Italian TV. So with the door to my dream job at The Letterman Show temporarily at least closed to me, I accepted a job I had been offered within RAI, Radio Televisione Italiana, as the United States uh, correspondent, actually, Bureau, the U.S. Bureau, for a show called Dominica In. So I take this job. I'm the United States Bureau Uh for an Italian institution. It's six hours live every Sunday. It's a wraparound for a soccer game. Still on, and a feature film. It's at that time, Italy had five channels. We were three of them. We had channel one, two, and three. Dominica Inn was the only game in town. Like everyone in Italy would sit down, have their Sunday dinner, and have the TV on for five
0: hours. Yeah, and they'd watch the game or whatever.
1: Yeah, and they would watch the game, and then things would happen, and there was this you know, a lot of ish going on in the studio. So my job was threefold. I was interviewing... Oh, it's hilarious. I wish I could go back. I was interviewing celebrities. So basically, I would go to the junkets, Uh and I would conduct the... They would send me the questions. I would translate them into English. I would ask the questions off camera. I did Dustin Hoffman, Jane Fonda, Kevin Bacon, Jeff Bridges. And I would ask the questions off camera and then I would send the tape there wasn't like you know a drop box I would send the two inch masters they would go in a pouch on TWA which doesn't even exist anymore and they would be sent to Italy where they would pretend it was live and they would show the interview (laughs) like a Ted Koppel with the host talking to Jane Fonda on a gigantic screen, and they would just edit me out. Uh huh. Edit my voice out and put him asking the questions.
0: That's so great.
1: And uh, I was like, wow, it was amazing. So I would do that, the celebrity thing. Then I would do satellites from all over the world. I had to do a live satellite from the Custer battlefield on the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Little Bighorn. Do you know what the Custer battlefield is? It's a field.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, are you just putting the mic to the ground?
1: I mean, it was just nothing was happening. Yeah. So, I've had, I found some Indian guy, paid him a hundred bucks to do a ceremony. <laughs> I mean, it was just it was hilarious. And then, one of the satellites, this is the best one, they had made a deal with Gina Lola Brigida. Because she, apparently, they thought she could get her celebrity friends. She couldn't get anybody. So I had to do... They, we had scheduled two satellites for one weekend, and one was supposed to be Gina Lillibridge, and it was Frank Sinatra, and the other was going to be uh, Jean-Michel Cousteau on the, on the Alcyon, which was the fancy new boat of the Cousteau organization in Norfolk, Virginia, so, of course, shock Frank Sinatra, like, doesn't materialize. So I say, well, why don't we just have Gina Lollobrigida interview Jean-Michel Cousteau? And thus ensued the greatest fiasco of my life. Um, in those days, the pack for a lav mic was about, weighed about 15 pounds, And it was probably about a foot square and had knobs on it. She was wearing, she shows up to be on this, you know, multi million dollar, state of the art vessel wearing stiletto heels and a pink chiffon like dress. And as there's a gangplank, so we're like orchestrating it. So the first, the opening shot will be her walking across the gangplank, but she's in heels. And then she will interact with Jean-Michel Cousteau, but she doesn't feel comfortable without her writer. She had this writer whose name was Aranya, which means like, kind of means spider. And we had to place him behind Jean-Michel Cousteau. And And so he would translate to her, and but he would also write what she was going to say. It would
0: hold it up, or
1: no? He would just like shout it in Italian. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm in the truck with the satellite coordinator, and it's time the bird. You know, we're about to go live to Italy, and the director says to me, oh, "She looks like she has a, a fucking goiter. What is that?" She had pulled the 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 pack. Around to the front. Mm -hmm. So under her dress, it looked like, you know, her right hip was pregnant. I mean, it was just not a good look. So they send me out, and I'm, senora, senora, and I'm trying to, like... I'm going to put the thing around in the back and she starts hitting me and (laughs) the wind is blowing and the pink chiffon, I'm being like slapped with pink chiffon and all of a sudden we hear, and we're alive! And so the first shot that everyone in Italy saw was me having the being bitch-slapped by (laughs) Gina Lola Bridget in stilettos. And that story actually got me my job at Letterman because... I did my year at Dominica Inn. And along the way, in addition to the celebrities and the satellites from stupid places, uh, they were really interested in Americana slash human interest. Uh Or as we love to call them, the freaks. Uh So I, at the tender age of 24, was sending... Swimming babies, uh, snake handlers that got into sleeping bags with live rattlesnakes, nuns who raced miniature horses to Italy. I would be, you know, finding the the, the I actually shipped thirty four rattlesnakes on Pan Am to Italy. I had to go to Serpents, come, venomous. Three <laughs> layers of wood. Boy, wow, you can never do that now. No, I mean you, it was a. You different can't do time. a hoverboard. No. I can't wait until the fallout from that continues. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, I, so I was told by Italy to go after Amy Rose, who was a girl from uh, North Carolina who had just won the national whistling competition. And Rome was interested in this girl, so i call the family. I would track down numbers. No internet, nothing. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. It was just you. And, yeah, how would was, you find it on the phone? I would just
1: phone and magazines and-
0: Call the writers or yeah, pizza places. Yeah,
1: exactly. Uh-huh. A lot of legwork. These kids these days are spoiled, so rotten. Um, and I call the parents of Amy Rose and uh, they I say, do you have a tape of her whistling? And they say, and it's like, we're talking about a cassette tape. We do have one, but it's with Darcy at the Tonight Show. So I think Darcy at the Tonight Show. What are the odds that this is the same Darcy? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to call her and find out. So I track down the number for the Tonight Show. Blah, 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 ask for Darcy. Get her on the phone. I say, yeah, it's Madeline from Rai Italian TV, uh-huh. and uh, I hear your, you know, you have a tape from Amy Rose, and she goes, oh yes, I do. She's great. What's your address? I'll make a copy and send it to you. And then I say, Are you Darcy, that was Ramey Blumenfeld's friend that used to work at Letterman? And she says, Yes, yes, I am. Oh, Madeline, right. We spoke a year ago. I said, Yes. And she goes, Oh, Madeline, we should become friends, we should be contacts. We should share information, and so I sent her the nun that raised miniature horses. She gave me a karate-chopping grandmother, and we became each other's, you know, Mm -hmm. friends. My parents buy the house in Italy. It's through a friend of mine that I went to high school with. Story not needed for this time, but we buy this place in Italy for $12,000, and I have to go renovate it. So I go from my parents, and I spend time in Italy, and we choose the faucets. And I was madly in love at the time with a person who shall remain nameless. He had actually come to Italy with me because we were flown for. He had lived in Rome, strangely, and we they sent us two tickets for the final episode of Domenica In. They pretended he was an was a archaeologist. And they flew the two of us, first class, to Rome. Uh And then the host of the show, Mino D'Amato, gave us his beach house for like a week. And then the guy went back to America, and I stayed on with my parents to get the house renovated. But the whole time I was like, I was in love. This was it. You know, I was buying him presents. I I wasn't you know thinking of anything else other than how i this was it my i, I was madly in love i get back and he's not at the airport and there're no cell phones so i get home and i'm calling him and as i'm dialing the number i notice a piece of you know yellow legal paper on my pillow in my roommate's mother's handwriting and i get on the phone and the guy says oh We have to talk. And whenever someone starts that, it's never like, we have to talk. You look great. (laughs) I bought you a puppy. We have to talk. I have a sandwich. It's never that. So he says, we have to talk. And I'm I'm, I'm free-falling emotionally. I look at the yellow piece of paper. And it says, call Darcy about a job at the Letterman Show. So, Adam, I had, I have, very few people have lived them. It's called an emotional rainbow. Uh It's the worst and the best happening in the same moment. So you end up at neutral. Right, right. You know, like my heart was broken, but I was getting the, and then I went for my interview, told Dave the Gina Lola Bridget a story. And Uh by the time I got back to my office, the executive producer, Barry Sands, called me and said, I don't know what you did in there, but can you start on Monday?
0: Oh, that's so great! And I was
1: there for six years.
0: Booking human I was interest, human or? interest. Uh huh.
1: Well, I yeah, I've always was human interest. I started as a researcher and then was promoted to a talent coordinator and then was a segment producer. But really, I was it was my domain. I, there was just me, and then Dan Callison was my intern. Uh huh. I hired him. He, he did was okay. Still in he did great. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh huh. And that's where it was. I stayed six years. And it was like graduate school. I mean, I think both Dan and I, you know, were trained there. You come out of Letterman, and there you just do not make a mistake.
0: It was know? amazing to watch because I worked with Daniel. Uh, he uh, there's a cooking segment, and he just snapped in. And he was the EP, but he just jumped in as that's producer. What
1: we do. We do demos. did yeah, yeah. demos. I did all the demos. I did all the. Human Interest, I did all the Kid Inventors, Jack Hanna from the Columbus Zoo, k The Magician. I mean, it was six intense, amazing, you know, years. And the part about the demos, especially with Dave, was every part of the show was so tightly controlled. You know, every joke was chosen, every everything. But it was the demos. He didn't want to know anything about it and you really saw him improving and he dave i'm sorry never before or after have i ever seen anything like it the jokes that that guy would pull out it seems effortless and yet there it is and you're like oh my god it's a perfect joke like in the platonian ideal of perfection uh-huh. that dave just like he did it and i felt like he did it more than anything else in my segments.
0: Why do you think he chose... I mean, it's funny, because everything is... Every joke and every moment, and especially in the interviews I've done, is controlled, but... And he obviously can do it. Why do you think he wants the other part, or other hosts want the other part so controlled?
1: I think because there's always that element of unpredictability. You don't know what the guest is going to do. You don't know how the crowd is going to be. You you? I also... I think that there's a really specific thing to comedians... Uh, that have this wonderful and yet toxic, most of them, sense of insecurity because you don't feel the joke coming and Dave Letterman would wake up every day of his life thinking he'd lost it. Uh That whatever that magic alchemy was that brought him to where he was, it was going to be gone. And I think that therefore you want to know that you have the structure That you can play within.
0: Right. So you can stay in it and
1: you have to. And you you feel it gives you a confidence because you know that you're going from this blue card to that blue card to that blue card.
0: Yeah, literally.
1: And it really is almost like, you know, leapfrogging or, you know, in this crazy, and you're hoping for inspiration because you still have to have your delivery and your performance and your energy. And so I think that they really want to have as much planned ahead of time so that they can give it their best and the magic can happen. Uh-huh. And I do feel that the, the more prepared you are, the more likely that magic is to happen. I mean, we, in the field, there were a couple of times in The Daily Show where there'd be like a funny story, so we'd say, oh, we're going to go out, and we'll, you know, we. I would get, I wouldn't pay as much attention to it, and then they come back with nothing. So we put into place a really rigorous System of what's the beginning, what's the middle, what's the end, what's our take, what are the joke beats, what are five things we can do to make this field piece hilarious if the person turns out to be a potato.
0: It's not dogmatic. It has to be these five things we created in, in the room, but you have that in case you need it.
1: Exactly. Worst case scenario, we could shoot this thing without the person even having a pulse.
0: Right, right, right. And
1: we'd come back with a story. Your wish... Mm-hmm. is that you never look at the cards yeah. and that magic happens. Right. But you are you can't count on the magic because if you do, it probably will not happen. So that's that sort of like fuck you thing about comedy magic. It's like if you need it, it won't be there. It's like no. anything in life. The people that get the free clothes are not the ones that need the free
0: clothes. <laughs> right, right. Right. It's always when you don't. You figure, exactly. It'd be great. And
1: same thing with love. It's when you absolutely do not need it that boom, there it is. When you want it really badly, you cannot have it.
0: Well, like, you guessed. Like Clarice Leachman, like, oh, she this listen and be funny. Like, no, no, no. We need three or four things that we can do. And then she goes out there and she's
1: She's hilarious. She and and never goes to any your things. And you, as a segment producer, it drives you nuts. Because you want to be like, well, you're funny. Talk to the person.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Why am I here? (laughs) With two funny people. What was your favorite human interest that worked the best for them? Oh, my God.
1: I had so many. But one that really, really, really. uh, There were so many. And they were in so many. uh, Just a series of like hilarious moments. But I had this guy on whose name was Captain... Morris Seddon and Captain Morris Seddon was uh, he was a, a, a he was like British low level royalty uh-huh. and he lived in this giant castle in England but he had no money and so he had gone wackadoo eccentric but he dressed from head to toe in black leather and ate garlic because he thought that it was good for him, and it just made him and the leather smell terrible. But he had invented electrically heated clothing. <laughs> so <laughs> the idea was, if you couldn't afford to heat your castle, right. you could heat your leather suit. And so he'd wired his outfit, and he had gloves, and he, but he had the sort of. It wasn't perfect.
0: <laughs> no. This guy didn't make the perfect the electric seat. weren't
1: very long, so whenever you went from place to place you had to keep unplugging it and plugging it back in. And also there wasn't any way to really modulate the heating elements. Uh-huh. <laughs> so Dave put his hand in the glove and like pulled it out and goes, Oh my god, I feel like I just stuck my hand in a toaster.
0: <laughs>
1: but the guy was when it's good. Mm-hmm the human interest like you it you could not write that you could not write it you could not make it up you could not it, I don't care who you are and how great a writer you are and how great your imagination is the real stuff is amazing and when it's that good and that pure and that real and you find it and you're just you know it's uh it really is such a great thing then I had the time I uh mar who is my guest kinda set Dave's head on fire
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: The name of the segment if you want to look it up online it's called uh, Kmart the magician incinerates David Letterman's head so the the Kmar was once again he couldn't if you were writing a bad magician who fucked up all his tricks. <laughs> you couldn't do it like you could have the most brilliant physical comedian on the planet could not
0: badly do those tricks he was trying to be good
1: He was I, I to this day i think he was but he was so bad and his props he made them all himself and they so he would like ask for Dave's height and i would give it to him but it would come and the thing would be like a foot and a half too short so Dave would like hold it on his shoulders <laughs> so the thing with the incinerating him was it was a can that went over his head, and then he put butane and flash paper in it. We rehearse it without Dave. Dave's not there for rehearsal, and Morty isn't my boss at the time. And he goes, "Kmart, this this sucks. Was con- Morty would always give you a lot of confidence in
0: yourself.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I work for Morty. Yeah. Yeah. I love Morty, but wow. They go, yes, yeah, really, this sucks. I need you to really, you know... You got to jazz this up for the show. I want you to put a lot of flash paper in there so it looks impressive. Because what you've got now is nothing. So Kmar, who only wants to please, just went. He pulled out all the stops.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you must put a mountain of flash paper and like a quart of butane. Uh-huh. The segment stop starts out with he has made a sign. For happy sixth anniversary. By the way, he wasn't like even on the sixth anniversary show. We hadn't booked him this was like three months later, but he had the sign. And when he unfurls it, he does it backwards. So it says like Y P P H. Like,
0: it's just like
1: <laughs> hilarious. So then he puts Dave into the contraption, which Dave has to hold up because the measurements are wrong. And he puts in just it went on for like, 10 seconds, just piling flash paper, pouring the butane. He lights it. The flames go up about three feet. Now, he's supposed to put it out by just tamping the top, and then ta-da! He'll take it off. Yeah. He's putting the top on. He's putting the top on. The flames are just getting bigger. <laughs> his sleeve is on fire. The hair in his arm got singed off. And everyone is we're watching in the you know the airlock. And I'm going, oh, my God, we're going to disfigure our meal ticket and it's going to be my (laughs)
0: fault.
1: It's going to be my fault. It's my segment. And it just went on and on. And then finally, like, stagehands came and, like, sprayed it. Uh Dave took it off and he was like, you are never coming on the show again. Dave would say later, like, he felt things getting out of control and he could smell... His face burning? No, his face wasn't really burning. It was there was metal, but he it was hot. It was getting yeah, hot, yeah. and he could spell the the lighter fluid. And he's thinking, "Oh my god! Like i my face and life are now in the hands of this asshole." And uh, Gamar wasn't on for about three months, and then we had a guest fall out, and we needed Gamar. <laughs> so you forgave he him came. at that point. And he came back,
0: and he was he was, t- fine. He was brilliant.
1: He's brilliant. He was brilliant pretty much every time, but that was the wow. best slash
0: worst. Make a comment at reachadam at mac.com. Join us on Facebook or be old school and go to our website proudlyresents.com. If you like the show, put the episode up on your Twitter, Facebook, stumble upon, dig, you know, all those things. Tell a friend. I'm Eddie Pepitone, and my Twitter account is at Eddie Pepitone. You're doing a show about black Twitter. Yeah,
1: it's called The Week in Black Twitter. It's for TV. It was uh, created by Danielle Belton and Aisha Callahan, who were two writers on Don't Sleep my
0: late night t- show for BET. You pitched so many shows. Why do you think this worked and what about it?
1: I think that in, at the end of the day, the clearer the concept, if you can pitch a show in one sentence, its chances of selling are, are much better than they would be if it takes two or three sentences. That's it's, It all comes down to the elevator pitch. It has to be a very clear concept that no one's seen before, but that they can understand immediately.
0: So what was the elevator pitch for this? The Week in Black Twitter. What are some of the shows that you've pitched that you think should have gone that, how would oh you my repitch God, it? Oh
1: God, I have so many, Adam. I feel like I'm a YouTube channel waiting to happen. Uh, the one that broke my heart the most, and also, you know, we were given a false positive, f- was for Bloomberg, and it was called None of Your Business, and it was a satire of financial news, uh-huh. but we shot it. It was commissioned by Bloomberg. They call Andy Lack, who was running uh, the network and the com- at the time, called me up and was just like, I just got into financial news, and then the market collapsed. And he really felt like the only thing that made sense was satire. And so... My team and I were set up in the Bloomberg offices, which if you ever get a chance, you need to go see. Because it's as if money is – it's virtual experience of cash flow. Uh The snack areas in that company – were ridiculous with make your own peanut butter and 15 kinds of potato chips and edamame came out every day at 11. And there were different kinds of cupcakes and cookies and juices and espresso machines. And there was a giant like d- d- uh, a digital undulating screen that would give you what I called useless information. So it would give you like the, weather report in Helsinki, Uh like completely impressive and utterly useless like most financial information is because finance and weather are two things that have more science and math attached to them. And at the end of the day, they have charts and graphs and opinions, but no, it's a flip of the coin. Is it going to go up? Is it going to go down? Is it going to rain? should I bring an umbrella which are the only questions you really need to have answered they can't they can they can narrow it down so we took Mark Evan Jackson and then who's hilarious Uh and our co-host we tried to get Julie Klausner and they we were told she wasn't hot enough she did the most amazing audition I've ever seen
0: how do you respond to that how do you
1: want to kill myself Uh uh-huh But I don't. But that's my my impulse is to go in the bathroom and find something sharp. You know, it's just like
0: you found the funniest person in
1: the world. And so I give her the, the for the her audition. I said, okay. I I printed up like you know the latest financial news, handed it to her cold, and I said, okay. I don't want you to read it. I want you to deliver it as if you're delivering it on air. But what you're finding out as you're reading it is it's all bad news for your personal portfolio
0: <laughs> right?
1: and she did it and I had to leave the room because I was laughing so hard and it was the most pure, funny beautiful, hilarious and they said yeah she's really funny but she's kind of a Gilda Radner we really need a hot bombshell and yeah my spirit sinks I'm crushed uh-huh. I want to kill myself we also had Jenny Slate on that pilot and they caught her because they didn't like
0: her She's not hot enough, or they just didn't like
1: it. I just didn't like the piece we did with her. I can't remember what it was, but it was really funny. Um, and uh, yeah, great writers. Eric Drysdale was one of the writers, and uh-huh. Jason Reisch. And uh, God, it was really, really funny. But the cool part about it was that the markets would close in America at 5 p.m., and the whole place would shut down, and everybody would leave. And then we would come in. So it was like night at the museum. We had 23 cameras on our pilot and only one camera operator. It was all robotic. They had stations all over the building uh-huh. where, uh, you know, you just flipped a switch and the camera would turn on, the light would go on, you could do a stand-up with a beautiful backdrop probably of the weather in Helsinki. But it was super impressive, and we had the access to all the information, the charts and graphs. But getting in and out of that building... I have I have gone to the Defense Department. I went for the Daily Show, and the Pentagon is easier to get into than the Bloomberg building because they feel like they have sh- secrets, you know? So every time you go in, you have to f- be fingerprinted.
0: Each time I, you go in?
1: Every time you go in and out, and I smoke. Uh-huh. So I was going in and out all the time, and each time I'd be like, you just saw me go in, but common sense was not involved.
0: <laughs> so uh,
1: well, Eric... Drysdale came up with this brilliant bit, and it was Ivan the stock predicting tarantula. So we snuck a tarantula into the Bluebirdville. You couldn't bring one in. We never could have gotten it in, but we just walked, the animal wrangler just walked right in with it in his backpack.
0: <laughs> well, they got his fingerprint.
1: Uh, well, yeah, it's all eight of them. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, none of your business was the biggest heartbreaker because after we left, Andy Lack called me and said, job well done, mission accomplished, you put together a brilliant creative team, you executed beyond our expectations, and we're definitely going to do this show. Then he called and said, in like October, so we did it in August, called me in October and said, we're not going to be able to afford it in this calendar year, but we're going to do it in January. So I decided to go to Italy for two weeks because I was turning 50. So it would have been six years ago, and uh, went to Italy for two weeks. Did a
0: guaranteed job. Guaranteed so Spent all your money. Home,
1: spent all my money. Came back, and two days before Thanksgiving, he called and said, "I'm not going to be able to pull this off." Why is that? Uh, we never really got a clear reason.
0: Uh huh. And who like, did you end up replacing? Uh, oh, Julie with? oh,
1: it was amazing. <laughs> and so I did like a joke
0: for myself.
1: Uh huh. We got a former Miss USA named Shandy Finnessy. and then we wrote her as Judy Woodruff. Uh-huh. So we like made her really, really, really smart, but she was impossibly gorgeous right. And uh, we took an actual interview that Judy Woodruff had done with Ben Bernanke, the chair- Fed chairman. And we cut Shandy into the interview. <laughs> we made them have an affair uh-huh. on the roof of the Eccles building. That's
0: great. Well, thank you so much for your time. So oh, this welcome. is so much fun. Oh, good. It's a lot of great you,
1: I know you're going to edit it down, but can you send me the? Because I'm going to write a book at some point in my life. I feel like I just gave you a lot of really good stuff. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah you're welcome. Take it. Yeah, yeah. I'll send you the whole thing. Now, isn't that great? I did not lie at the top of the show. I swear to God. I knew it would be this good. Whew. Glad I did not lie to you. All right, real quick if you want more interviews, interviews with Robert Morton, who's mentioned on the show, go to slash interviews. Or on iTunes, check out Proudly Resents Presents Interviews. Check out all the interviews from the show, and if you want to hear film reviews, go to Proudly Resents Presents Bad Film Recaps. Could not make it simpler. I probably could. Probably could. If you want to reach me at Proudly Resents on Twitter, reach Adam at Mac.com. Facebook group Proudly Resents. Adam, we're we're out of time for this interview.